I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. People, people, welcome again to the Nova Conversations podcast. I've had too long of a break and I am so excited to get back and jump back into regularly scheduled episodes. I was doing them every two weeks. I might have to push it back to like every three weeks, but we'll see. Life is bananas, but I'm going to talk about that later. Uh, So I have an amazing episode. Like seriously, when I created this podcast, this is what I wanted the podcast to be about. We talk, talked to Danielle Carnahan about all sorts of things from trauma and elephants to trauma and conservation work, um, public shaming and, and social media, things to consider when you're posting on social media, and just really getting into the depth and the heart behind what we do as conservationists, no matter where we are, whether we're behind a computer screen, trying to make the right decisions for ourselves and for the planet, but also for different countries, different cultures, and how to delicately balance um, all aspects of what we come to the table with as researchers and scientists and conservationists and people who care about science, but also who care about the planet and care about people. And I just, I, this thought came to me today and it's this quote, like the science is not as important as the people. And this episode is titled, let me find that. What did I end up titling it? (laughs) I can't remember. Things, wait, hold on. Things they don't tell you about working in conservation. Okay. It was originally going to be titled something like um, the unspoken obstacles in conservation, specifically like elephant conservation, because that's what Daniel studies. But, um, and, and there is a lot of that in there. I just, I really wish the conversation could have gone longer. I should have just kept talking because uh, it was just really great. And Danielle has such depth and oh, like a well thought out way of speaking that I so appreciate. There were a lot of good quotes that I need to pick from, from this episode. But I say all that because, you know, things that no one really talks about is um, I want to be able to talk about it more often. I want to have these conversations. I want to bring what's kind of hidden to the light. So I wanted to start this intro by just saying things from my point of view that I've experienced as a field tech or a conservation field worker, field biologist, that were just really hard. Um, I I used to think that this is just the way it is. And I, I almost kind of, I didn't appreciate it, but I almost kind of like, expected it or thrived off of the punishment of like, okay, I'm a human being on this planet. Therefore, I need to suffer in order to make a positive impact. So you give yourself a lot of, um, you beat yourself up both mentally and physically too. And you expect, or I expected that that's just the way it is. That's just how to do wildlife conservation. So for example, um, one of my jobs, I, you know, you wake up super early to do bird stuff and 
they really should give you consistent housing and I did not have consistent housing. I had a, one time there was this really janky RV. I mean, I remember going into it and walking into it and thinking like, there is no way in hell that I am sleeping in this place. It was like one of those 70s RVs that looked like it hadn't been stayed in in about five years, covered in bugs, like dust. It was so gross. And they, that's where they put me up for the night. And I was like, okay, um, no. First of all, I was totally by myself no one around, sketchy, um, yes, and I would, I, you know, I just was, or there was one time that I had to sleep in my car, because, uh, yeah, because that's just what you do, because that's what I expected. I, 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 at the time, thought it was like this grand adventure, and it is still kind of, you know, fun to look back on and be like, oh, what an adventure. I ended up sleeping outside under the stars, and um, I had my suit, my, um, my sleeping bag outside, and I, I had a good night of sleep anyway, but what if it had been raining? What if it had been storm? Like, I there were just all these things that I tried to make the best of a situation, but in reality, they should have taken better care of their field technicians. Like, really, really seriously, much better care of them. So now I can see how problematic this is to do to your techs nowadays. So please don't do that if you're listening. Secondly, um, you know, if the animals don't behave the way your boss maybe expects them to, then it's not your fault. I talked about this a little bit in one of the previous episodes, but one of my jobs, these birds were not flying into the net, not flying into the net. We tried everything for weeks and weeks, and we busted our ass, like, trying to get these birds to get in the net, and they would not cooperate, just wouldn't cooperate. So in order to meet our quota, we just had to, like, work twice, three times as hard. Um, and it was a small crew. So I remember talking to someone else and saying like, hey, this is, we need to tell our supervisor that this is too much. They're working us too hard. I can't, this is not sustainable. I can't keep doing this. And my friend basically said, I'm not going to do that with you because I want a job in this career. And so I'm going to suck it up in order to get a good letter of reference or a good recommendation letter or something like that. So we just, we just sucked it up basically. Um, we suffered through in order to have a good letter of recommendation, especially from an organization that's you know, well-known. So, and I, and the last story I wanted to, no, two more stories, stories, sorry. One is like, I volunteered for an organization for years, 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 thinking I would be next in line, like when a position came open. And I was even like, you know, building myself up to that spot, thinking like, okay, someone had just left. That means I'm going to take their place. I'm going to get this full-time job. It's going to happen. It's going to be me. Nope. <laughs> it just doesn't happen the way you want it to. It doesn't happen the way you expect it. So these are all, the, all these things and confusing and chaotic and unpredictable. Like, honestly, sometimes working in conservation is just like a roll of the die. And if you don't get in it, it's not your fault. It really, it really, really isn't. And if you are in it, you might end up leaving because you see how difficult it is. So, um, and then my last example is like the, I keep going back to this job where I worked $4 an hour, which I've talked about a lot. Uh, <laughs> and it really and truly was less. I did the math again. So yeah, don't do that, guys. There were days 
where it was so slow, so hot, so brutal that I like physically couldn't keep up with the demands of the job. But I did it anyway because I'm a perfectionist. I didn't want anyone getting mad at me or telling on me or saying like Laura's not doing her end of the bargain. But now that I'm in this position to have a platform to be able to speak about it, I want to speak up. I want to say we can make this better. Like I was hiking in this slippery mud bog swamp area and I had to do this loop every 30 minutes carrying this awfully uncomfortable literally solid wood desk or dresser drawer um and that's what my job was and I just yeah I remember calling my mom like crying (laughs) just to prove how tough I was just to prove I could make it but these are the unspoken rules that really need to change Um, I wrote this part down because I think it's important to share. We oftentimes punish ourselves by working harder, doing more, or to pay penalty or penance, covering up for our sins, whether we realize it or not. Let's not do that anymore. Let's do the work to heal ourselves so that we aren't perpetuating these generational traumas on our employees, on our field techs, on our volunteers, or even onto our kids. The science is not as important as the people. So... With that being said, thanks for listening to my little intro spiel. Got a lot on my heart and on my mind today. Um, Before we get to the interview with Danielle, which is amazing and you're going to love it, please don't forget about our Patreon. I am thrilled we have a new Patreon supporter and I want to say a big thank you to Zach S., who is at the $10 level of our Patreon. Thank you, thank you so much, Zach, for becoming a Patreon And again, to Caitlin for getting her Apex Predator quaternary consumer level. So I really appreciate you guys. Thanks for supporting us and keep sharing these stories. Share the podcast as much as you can, as much as you're able or willing. And keep spreading the word because these are important conversations to have. Also, go to novaconservation.com when you get a second. I don't often ask for this, but please do sign up for our email newsletter. It keeps you up to date with all the things we have going on. And we have a lot going on. So not only the podcast, but I have all sorts of Instagram fun things that we do. But definitely, you'll want to be in touch with the trips and travels and experiences and adventures that we have that will make funds for conservation even more accessible to all people so that everyone can protect the planet and find a way to work in conservation if they want to and not have any barriers to conservation. Oh, speaking of barriers, this episode was recorded many months ago. (laughs) I think in like January 2022. So like now it's the summer. And I didn't know about uh, Conservation Nation, the organization that I've mentioned quite a few times on the podcast. And I think I would have talked about that more in this episode at certain parts. So do visit and support Conservation Nation. They are trying to work very, very hard to get people from diverse backgrounds into the conservation industry. And so I just want to plug them at every chance I can. And if there's any other nonprofits or organizations that are doing that type of work, please let me know because that was one of the reasons I wanted to start a nonprofit was to help with that. But um, I would rather just support the nonprofits that are out there doing that and find ways to bring funds. Okay, all that being said, thanks for listening and enjoy my conversation with Danielle Carnahan. 
Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome again to Nova Conversations. I'm here today with Danielle Carnahan. Did I pronounce your last name right? You did, yes. First try. Excellent. <laughs> How are you, Danielle? Good. How are you? And thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get into this. Yes, yes, me too. We have so much to talk about. Yeah. I'm doing good. I'm just um, like, like I was, I was telling her earlier, it's us. I live in Tennessee and it's a snow day, right? So um, there's no snow on the ground. It's just that <laughs> schools were canceled. And now my six-year-old has to stay home, <laughs> even though there's no threat of any bad weather. So it's just one of those things. They canceled school. I'm glad they did. But also, what do you do? I don't know. As a, as a busy parent, yeah. it's just hard to navigate this sometimes. Yeah. I didn't sure. have time to wash my hair. Hey, enough about me. Anyway. That's so. all right. That's all right. I have my hair in braids because I didn't have time to wash my hair. So, so you know what? <laughs> Take it as it goes. <laughs> this is a common theme. I feel like when you're so passionate yeah. about what you do and you like, seriously, I, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to eat. I just want to keep working because I have so much to do. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's hard to slow down sometimes. So it can be for sure. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Usually the first question I like to start off with is um, how much field experience do you have? And what's your favorite field story if you have one? So I started doing field work mostly after I finished my master's degree. I got my master's in conservation medicine from Tufts, which is in Massachusetts. And um, I finished that in 2019, man, it feels so long ago because of this pandemic, but it was in 2019 that I finished that and went to Thailand. Like, yeah. Right. You were in. Um, Yeah. So I went to Thailand to do my final research for my case study. So I was researching, um, complex PTSD in captive Asian elephants. So I was at an elephant sanctuary doing behavioral research on their elephants there. So that was pretty much my start to field work. Wow. Uh, back in 2019. Yeah. Wow. Can really I, cool. can I ask you what does complex strip? Wait, what did you say? Complex, complex PTSD. What does that look like in elephants? How does that exhibit itself? It can look a lot of different ways. So complex PTSD is different from PTSD because usually it stems from a prolonged trauma in early life. So mm-hmm. it, it is also something that can happen in humans. And mostly it would look like if a child had like prolonged abuse in their childhood, you know? So in elephants, a lot of times it'll happen because the baby elephants are taken away from their moms really early and they go through the training process. And uh, so that can cause a lot of prolonged trauma. Uh, This can form certain behaviors. And a lot of them are really common to see in like zoo animals, circus animals, even in sanctuaries. And I always like to mention that just because you see one of these behaviors where they're swaying back and forth or they're like bobbing their head up and down or something like that doesn't mean that they're necessarily in a bad place. It just means that they have trauma and that's their coping mechanism. So, you know, it's like we bite our nails sometimes or play with our hair or something like that when we're stressed because it helps us cope. So that behavior came from a place of stress and potential trauma but it doesn't mean that they're still in that trauma. It's just a behavior that they have learned to cope. But with complex PTSD, there are other behaviors that you can look for in elephants. A lot of times they can be more afraid of certain stimuli. So they get afraid more easily. 
they um, can react more aggressively to certain things that normally an elephant wouldn't react in a certain way to. They can be more aggressive to other elephants. They can be more aggressive towards humans. So a lot of the research, you have to take the time to know that elephant first to see what is their baseline normal behavior versus what is kind of a reaction to something that has been learned. You know what I mean? Hmm, Absolutely. So how long were you in Thailand and how long did you conduct this research? That was for three months. And uh, then I came back, finished my paper. And then most recently I was in Nepal for six months last year. Oh, and I'll be going back there in about a week. Oh, really? Okay. So, so you traveled during the pandemic. Um, So what was, what was the thesis of your paper? Like what was kind of the general, you know, how people always ask, like, what was your general conclusion about your research? Yeah. So one of my major takeaways was that the vast majority of the elephants coming from the tourism sector had underlying trauma. And unfortunately, a lot of those behaviors, although they can be reduced and managed in a ethical setting, they never truly go away. So I saw so many elephants and the sanctuary I was at was amazing, like no better place for an elephant to recover. And still some of these elephants that had been there for 10 years, you know, even more, they still will sometimes show those behaviors because they still revert back sometimes. So it's very hard to get to a point where that elephant will completely get rid of those behaviors, but they can be managed and alleviated with positive, with a positive environment and um, a more ethical setting. So, which really shows that they are able to recover. So if we rescue them and put them in a better place, they can recover. Okay. That was going to be my next question is, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no like elephant therapists. <laughs> so you can't yeah. talk it out. You can't do behavioral. Yeah. Tell me what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me your life story. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that that's challenging to communicate, try to figure out a way to communicate with a species that doesn't. And I study birds and birds yeah. don't show outward signs of stress. Like sometimes yeah. birds pass out, like they just knock over dead and oh, you're oh like, my Oh, you had cancer this whole time and you had no. Right. So elephants must be very expressive. I, I would think. And hopefully that gives you clues to figure out how to deal with their trauma. Does putting them back in like a family setting or a group setting help? Definitely socialization can be a big part of recovery because they are generally social animals. It can depend on the individual because some of them will be aggressive right off the bat. So you have to do slow reintroductions, but a lot of the elephants that I was observing when I was in Thailand, they did end up finding a group of elephants that they kind of formed as their family. And it Mm -hmm. did help a lot with their stress. It seemed, I mean, I didn't take any like fecal samples or anything like that. We were just doing behavioral but um, all of them had improved behavior when they were in their family group. You know, they weren't actually family, but they were their chosen family. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like you kind of get to start over a new life. Yeah. Happy mm-hmm. setting. But I have so many questions. So you said you took fecal samples. What does the... No, I said we didn't take fecal samples. So we don't have any um, like numbers of the stress. We didn't test any cortisol. Okay, we just so- were doing behavioral. Okay. Yeah. So you, but that you didn't take the fecal samples, excuse me, poop samples, but that implies you can test stress and fecal samples. 
Okay. Yeah. So you can take either blood samples, fecal, urine, anything like that to test cortisol to kind of, kind of come to conclusions about stress. The issue with certain samples is blood samples can be skewed because cortisol releases so quickly into the system and blood samples are stressful, even for humans, when you can explain what it's for. Right. So sometimes with a blood sample, it could be that the cortisol is really high, but it could have released because you're holding their ear and shoving a needle into it. You know what I mean? Exactly. So usually a fecal sample is a good way to understand if they have like prolonged stress because it would measure long-term cortisol in the body. Uh, but that takes a lot of funding <laughs> to have the money to do the samples and to send them to a lab and everything like that. So I, see. I hope to do that in the future, but at this point, unless I get more funding, I probably can't. I see. Okay. That's very interesting. So just for people who are listening, who might not know, have a a stronger science background, cortisol is a stress hormone. So with high levels of cortisol, it means that you're a more stressed individual, essentially. We we do that for birds, but we do, you know, uh, it would be a blood sample and we'd have to get like a baseline really quickly as soon as you catch the bird to get just like before their body reacts and then like an after right. So yeah, it's an int- that's an interesting, I I've never heard of looking at fecal uh, feces for cortisol. I don't think that's doable in birds, but um, anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. Might, I might be, it a, be. Mammal, a mammal thing, but it might be, yeah, <laughs> might be for sure. So, so tell me about Nepal. When are you? So I was a week. Yeah. I haven't booked a flight yet, but I'm going in a week. (laughs) You're like me. I'm like scramble last minute. (laughs) Yeah. I've been waiting for my visa to come through. I don't like booking flights before visas because I feel like I'm going to jinx the process somehow. And somehow they're going to be like, we know that you jumped the gun. We're not approving you. (laughs) I, I, I can totally relate. You're like, just in case this doesn't pan out. Just going to make sure I really want to go. So I'm going to not jinx myself. Right. Um, So, so you traveled to Nepal for six months during the pandemic. And what were you doing there? And what will you be doing this time? So when I went last time, I was doing work with a sanctuary there. I was kind of consulting with them, with their elephants, helping to do some behavioral observations and some research. And I was supposed to be there for three months and then the country went into lockdown and the airport closed. And so I got stuck there. (laughs) So I ended up staying for six months, which honestly was great. I enjoyed it. Um, But yeah, I was working at the sanctuary that during that time, this time when I go back, I won't be working with any specific organization, but I'm hoping to do some research partnering with an organization here in the U S for anyone who doesn't know where I'm from in the U S. Um, so hopefully we'll be doing some research, uh, with some of the elephants around the town that I'll be in. Okay. So you're saying hopefully like you're going there with kind of tentative plans and you're hoping that the funding's going to work out or, or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of moving parts. A lot of it also is, uh, you know, it's challenging when you're a foreigner going into some of these countries to get people to accept what you're doing. And that is an issue that I've run into a lot, especially in Nepal, more so than Thailand. Uh, But in Thailand, you know, I was working so closely with the sanctuary that I didn't really have any opportunities to be rejected by anybody else. But in Nepal, it's, 
it's very difficult because there are a lot of privately owned elephants there. And so there are a lot of people who own elephants and they can get a little bit stressed out about foreigners who are noticeably foreign coming into their space and working with the elephants because they, that's their source of income. And they get nervous that people are going to post photos online and, and call them out for doing unethical activities with their elephants or, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. They're really nervous about the backlash that could come their way from Mm -hmm. any research or any like publicity. And so I've, that's something that I have found very challenging during my time in Nepal with what I'm sharing on social media, what I'm sharing on my blog, what I'm, you know, what I'm putting out into the world, because on one end, like I really want to share the stories of these elephants and represent them online where people can easily access it. But on another end, I have to manage the, my reputation (laughs) among all of these other people who, if I'm saying too much about certain issues, they're not going to want anything to do with me. So then they're going to be like, no, you can't do research on my elephants. No, you can't come see my elephants. You can't do any of this. And in the long run, that's only going to hurt the elephants more because then some, then me, as well as future people who want to contribute to conservation to help these elephants are going to be rejected because maybe they look like me. They're a foreigner. They, they have an accent. You know what I mean? So it can be challenging to set yourself up for success. <laughs> and a lot of that starts with going in person and building relationships with people and talking to them slowly about the research that you're going to be doing in hopes that in the future, they will be accommodating of it. So it's less for th- this time. It's less about funding and more about that social part of things. Building the relationships. Yeah getting a good repertoire with the, um, right. You said they are privately owned. Yeah. So there are a lot of elephants around Chitwan national park and there is one sanctuary. There is two government facilities that are government owned elephants. They're used a lot by the, um, by the army when they go into national park to respond to any incidences or anything like that, they are used to patrol. And they also have a breeding center that is government owned where they're breeding elephants to stay in captivity, which is a whole separate <laughs> ethical issue. Oh, wow. To say- and then, okay. yeah. And then there are privately owned elephants who are just people, people like us <laughs> who have just gone out and bought an elephant and they buy them mostly to use them for giving rides to tourists. So wow. most of them are chained up in the back of someone's house (laughs) on a piece of land or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you first go, it's shocking because you're driving around and you're like, I see so many elephants. There's so many elephants just standing under these little structures. Where did they come from? And then over time you see them walking around in the streets and giving rides to tourists and things like that. And the people who own them, some of them are very knowledgeable about elephants because they have generational knowledge about elephants and working with them. Some of them are wealthy people who have just thought, okay, this is something I can add to my hotel or to whatever it may be to bring in more tourists, to bring in more income. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, most, most of these people, I would say almost all of these people, they, it's not that they hate elephants. It's not that they're bad people. It's that they're trying to make money Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it. They are looking for income. 
they're trying to feed their families, you know? And so it's a really difficult issue to go and, and talk with them and understand where they're coming from with their experiences. And so it is sad when people do go in and they'll post those kinds of photos and shame them online. And I know that they do take it personally because they're like, I'm not doing this from a bad place. Like I, I'm trying to feed my family. I'm trying to make ends meet, you know, all this, all these things, which, you know, in the same situation, how can we say that we wouldn't do that? Yeah. That's a really good point too. Like everyone else around you, look at, look around you, all your neighbors are doing the same thing and they're making money out of this. So why not me too? And uh, if that's the lifestyle and that's the culture, who are we to judge? That's really interesting. Right. So I want to go back to your, your um, blog and your call to conserve and how that relates to, you said that there, there could be some backlash So talk a little bit more about what you're trying to do through call to conserve, a call to conserve and um, all your social media that I see and you're bringing awareness to this while also respecting the cultural differences. Right. I started my blog back when I was in grad school, when I was getting my master's, I was living in Boston and actually I started it because we watched the documentary Varunga on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about the mountain gorillas in Varunga National Park in Central Africa and like all of the madness happening there with the mountain gorillas. I am not a gorilla expert, but my advisor in grad school is. (laughs) So we were talking about gorillas and, uh, And I was shocked. I was like, why didn't I know about this? You know, like I consider myself to be somebody who should know about these things, you know, like I'm studying this. Why don't I know about these kinds of issues? And then I, I was sitting at my house and I was like, well, if I don't know about this, like how many other people don't know about this? Because the only reason I know about this is because I'm studying it. Right. So that was literally why I decided to start my blog because I was like, there are so many issues out there that people need to know about and that need to be talked about in a way that's very understandable for anyone, for all backgrounds. So I built my blog, my website in like a weekend and wrote a blog post about the mountain gorillas was the first thing I wrote. And then I started talking more about elephant conservation and things that I was studying just because I was thinking, you know, there are so many people who just don't know And if they want to find any information about it, sometimes it's, you know, scientific research. That's really hard to take in if you're not from that background, or even if you are from that background, you know, like sometimes I read those papers and I have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. So I wanted it to be kind of a place for people to go to learn about different conservation issues around the world and different animals. Okay. And it's kind of stemmed from there. So I've continued to write about a variety of different topics. And recently I launched a membership on my website because I wanted to talk about more sensitive issues, but I didn't want it to be in public domain. So I see that was my way of kind of dancing around these topics because I don't want them to be searchable on Google. I don't want them to end up on the phones of somebody who I wouldn't want to read it or see a video or something like that. But I want to be able to communicate these issues to people who care and who are, you know, just wanting to learn more, who are coming from a place of, I need to be educated on these topics. So I started my membership a few months ago to share those kinds of stories 
And so far I've, I've been enjoying having that kind of second part of my website for that. And, uh, because it just gives me a place where I can speak a little bit more candidly, share a bit more openly, post some photos that I normally wouldn't post on social media because they might get skewed in the wrong way or things like that. You know what I mean? So that's what I've been doing on my blog currently. And I try to share as much of it as I can on my social media, on my TikTok and my Instagram and on my Facebook group. But sometimes, you know, there's again, certain things that they look a certain way. And I know that people won't read the caption. So I don't want to post a certain video that people are going to take out of context. So I try not to post too many things that show me interacting closely with animals. Even if in my work, I am interacting closely. I don't want to necessarily show that on social media because, you know, if someone just finds it from a hashtag, they see a white person in a foreign country touching an elephant and they're like, I want to do that. And so I know how it looks and I don't, I don't want to be promoting that kind of those kinds of activities. So I try to only post photos and videos that show like Mahouts, who are the elephant caregivers in Asia. Like I show a lot of videos with them interacting with the elephants because they are meant to interact with the elephants and uh, try to keep everything looking the way that it should look. I've been very conscious of that, (laughs) making sure that things couldn't get skewed in, in one direction or the other on there. Right. That makes sense. And it's good. That's a good way of going about it to be aware conscious and, um, understanding how people can perceive different things just by seeing it without, without really doing the deep dive. Cause on social media, it is such a, you see one thing, you read one meme or a, or a photo and you make an instant judgment. Yeah. And judgment kind of thing. As well. Yeah, absolutely. It's and I get it. I get it that people don't always read the captions. I don't always read the captions, <laughs> but you know, I, tend to on posts about wildlife conservation, things like that. But someone who's not from that world, they're seeing a picture of, you know, me and an elephant. They're not going to read the caption to say like, I am trained to work with this elephant. They're just seeing like, Oh, that's really cute. (laughs) And I get that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so when you went to Thailand, how did you integrate with the culture um, again, because people who are listening, you are a white person. How did you yeah. with the culture there? How did you, was it difficult? Did you, did they find, did you find that they were respectful and receptive towards an outsider, um, doing this research and compared to Nepal, for example? I definitely had no problems in Thailand. It helped that the sanctuary that I was working with the owner founder head of the sanctuary is also a foreigner. So she is white and she speaks the language and she has all of her mahouts that have been with her for a long time and they love and respect her. And so they were like welcoming to me from day one, you know, they're so used to seeing someone who looks like me running around the sanctuary. So Um, I had no problems with that. Everyone was really accepting of me. I made so many friends in the village that I was living and it was an amazing experience. I think that in Thailand, there are a lot of mahouts that are afraid of people taking photos and videos of them and posting them online 
because there are a lot of mahouts that have been wrongfully called out. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from a place of people, they'll see a mahout riding an elephant, for example. And in sanctuaries, sometimes that is necessary, whether we like it or not. Sometimes I don't like it, but that doesn't change the fact that sometimes in order to maintain safety for the elephants and the mahouts, they need to ride on top of the elephants. And this is not an abusive thing. It's not like they're hitting them or doing anything, you know, it's, it's necessary. And the mahouts get afraid that people will take photos of them and post them online and say that they're, you know, abusing the elephant or they're doing something terrible because they take a lot of pride in their work and they take pride Mm -hmm. in the fact that they take care of elephants and they love their elephants. And so they're like, I don't want a foreigner to look at me and think that I'm a bad person because like, I love this animal and I'm trying everything I can for them. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's the same in Nepal with a lot of the mahouts there. It's the same kind of situation where they get nervous when they see people walking around with their phones out or their cameras out because they just don't know what people are going to say about them online. I think in Thailand, they were very receptive to me and the research I was doing. And I, I became really close with the mahouts. I would hang out with them every day uh-huh. in the jungle because I would go into the jungle with them to observe the elephants. So I would just sit and hang out with them. So they all knew me and they knew that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't coming in with any negative intentions and that I understood their positions and uh, their, their jobs. Mm-hmm. So I think that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. That is a great point. And that's, like you're, you have your membership to discuss the kind of more complex nuances about the photos and the stories. And that's yeah. why I started the podcast too, is because, yeah, you can see someone riding an elephant and be like, this is wrong, always wrong, always wrong. And then without right. knowing the story and the nuance behind, these are people who care versus this person over here who might not. And right. all of the differences, the cultural differences, the legal differences in different countries, yeah. the, um, the, background, the ancient wisdom that people who are not, do not look like us have from generations upon generations on how to interact with wildlife that is all so important to bring into and, and remember, um, as we're doing this work. So that's really, absolutely very interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you a devil's advocate question. Okay. (laughs) How would you respond to someone who might say, um, like, well, foreigners shouldn't go into a different country and work with wildlife there. It should only be like, this is parachute science or this is, um, helicopter white savior complex. Yeah. The white savior complex or you're, you know, I hear that argument a lot. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because you can understand both sides, you know, and I think something that I spoke with some people about when I was in Nepal that, um, that they had experienced as foreigners in the country. So these were other non, non, yeah, uh, non-Nepalese foreigners in the country working with elephants and they were saying like you know it's hard because we really want to support the local people and you know we want to support them and pay them so that they can get their education so that they can learn more about wildlife and do all these things but in certain countries whether we like it or not 
And again, we don't like it. A lot of these people don't have the same opportunities to get higher education, whether it's because they don't have the funding because the funding's not available to them, or they don't have the institutions because there are no, you know, good universities to get a PhD or something like that to study the animals. Um, Sometimes, you know, there are people around the world who have an expertise and they aren't from the country that you're working in. They're from a different country, whether it, you know, be a Western country or not. And uh, if we want to continue moving forward, I think that being able to collaborate is really important. I think that there should be no taking over, Mm -hmm. you know, no one should be going in and saying like, you're out, I'm in, Mm -hmm. we're doing this now we're running this show. It should be a collaboration because at the end of the day, we, we all have the same intention. We all have the same heart going into it. We want to make the same impact and the best way we can do that is by collaborating and working together and trying to find some common ground. Because for example, like if I go into a certain country and I say, I, I would love to collaborate with you and help you in any way I can, I might be able to much more efficiently get funding for a project. For example, Mm -hmm. you know, if I put up a GoFundMe, I will probably be able to get larger amounts of money because of who follows me, because they're in a country where our dollar has more value. And again, it's, it's not that it's right, but it's true. And if I can bring that to them, then, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, who cares if it came, who it came from, you have it. And I think about it with like, um, Jane Goodall talking about how she took funding from oil companies when she was starting some of her chimp projects and people put, you know, gave her so much crap for that, for saying like, how could you how could you partner with someone like that? And she's like, at the end of the day, they're giving me money for this project to, to improve the lives of these animals, to make a difference. Who cares where the money is coming from? We're doing something great with it, you know? And I think about it a lot like that, where if we can go in and we can provide support without overtaking a project, but just provide the support that's needed, however it may be needed, whether it's financial or not, then we could accomplish things so much faster. But it it does take shifting the mindset away from the ego and away from, I want this to be my project. And I want to accomplish this. And instead putting, putting all your focus on the animal and saying like, what can my role in this be? Because I'd love to get involved. That's a great answer. Collaboration is key. Partnerships yeah. are so important. We have to work together to solve these problems. Yeah, you're so right about the aspect that you, we have access to different economic streams um, because we live in the United States in a Western country. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm trying to do through Nova Conservation too, is like find more funds for conservation through targeting people who want to go on, excuse me, who want to go on trips and kind of bringing them out of the like, oh, you're going to go on vacation anyway, instead of going on that sandal to that sandals resort or yeah. Disney cruise, like let's divert some of those funds to conservation. And here's a more ethical, like we're over here. We want you, we want your money to go. This yeah. Instead of, and if the funds for like the Jane Goodall example, if the funds for oil companies, they're going to give it to someone might as well go to conservation. Yeah. Instead of going back into oil. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I totally agree. And, um, that make, that's a great, that's a great defense. Good. Yeah, well, it's, well it's a, it's a tough one. Like you said, it is a tough one because you, 
you know, it's, you're walking on both sides of it as both of us being people who want to work in global conservation coming from the U S it's hard being like, well, there's no jobs, but also you should hire locals, but also I don't have any job, you know, like it's, you know, we're on both sides of the issue because we're like, what's right. And what, what can I do still, even though I am not from your country, it is, it's a really hard issue. So tricky. Yeah. And I, yes, the the fine line, I lately I've been like walking that fine line of, you know, the, the organizations that are bringing people out, um, interns and training them and apprenticeships and they ask for a fee or a donation. And I'm like, okay, you're getting training, you're getting skills and the organization you're working for, that's a really good organization and let's support them. But then on the other hand, there's people who are early in their career and it makes sense. They're like, why would I pay to travel? Why would I pay to volunteer? I, I, I'm going to just go work for this organization. I'm like, no, that's, it's pay to work. That's a different thing. And this right. organization is really good, but don't go travel with this place because they're going to take advantage of you and they're going to exploit you and kind of sifting out the differences. Like not everything that asks you to pay a fee is necessarily bad. You have to look at all right. the layers and all the nuance. Like I hate, I keep using this word. I don't hate it, but I just, <laughs> it's like this nuance, like we have to have these discussions to really get to the heart of the matter. And it's not as easy as just like, pay bad always or travel. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I totally agree with that. Mm. I think too, it takes doing a lot of research and communicating a lot with that place to understand what are you giving and what are you taking? You know, what, what is in it for you? What's in it for them? When I was doing my research in Thailand, I got funding from my university And I was paying a fee to that sanctuary to stay there as, you know, an intern type of role. Mm -hmm. And I was helping with other things around the sanctuary every day and, you know, doing guest relations, things like that, taking care of other animals while I was doing the research. And, you know, but that came from having Zoom calls with them and discussing what am I, what do you need from me? And what am I going to gain from the experience? You know, I think that Sometimes people get into situations where they feel like this has been really negative and exploitative. And a lot of that can be avoided by having very clear understandings and outlines of what are you gaining from the experience? Because at the end of the day, if you do have the money to do some kind of pay to intern, pay to volunteer, something like that at a reputable organization, like you're saying, and you've discussed clearly here are the things that I want to learn. And here's how we're going to make sure that I will learn those things. And in return, here are the things that I'm going to do for you on top of the money that I'm paying the organization to support your conservation work. Then you're walking away from that with the feeling of, wow, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. You know, I, I learned how to do this or this, you know, and now I have the skills that I need to apply for this job that I want at X corporation, organization, whatever it may be but it's about having that clarity and having that communication and not just finding like the cookie cutter programs that are like, yeah, you'll be here for a week and here's your itinerary. You know what I mean? Because that's more of a vacation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So how I'm going to ask another, uh, devil's advocate question. Cause as we're getting into this, like you're, you're pointing out some good things, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. 
and ask like, okay, so if you're someone who has made it really clear, you've gone through the vetting process, you know what you're going to get, you're willing to pay and you know what the organization's going to give and, and receive from you and you feel good about this. Then you come back to, you know, your Western country, United States, wherever. Um, and then you use those skills that you've paid for to get preferential hiring and get a job. Um, maybe even in that place you went to travel. Mm-hmm. So like, it's, it's almost like the, the question, the issue here is like apples to oranges of if let's say you go to Mexico and you pay to do a really great bird banding internship experience, mm-hmm. then you come back to the States and you're like, oh, well now I know tropical birds. So I guess I'll go find a job in Mexico, but you're not native to Mexico. Whereas someone who was native to that country didn't might not have been able to pay for that experience, might not have been, been able to yeah. pay for a resume to build that. And then they're outcompeted of a position because someone could pay who's not native to the place. So like, yeah. how does, how, I don't have a solution. I'm just like, <clears throat> we're going to, let's just flesh this out. What, what do you think? Yeah. I, I talked about this recently in a blog post I wrote and it's frustrating to me that the working in conservation has turned into who can afford to work in conservation instead of who has the values and the drive to work in conservation. And I think that that's not only unique to conservation, but it is unique to a few different kinds of industries where, you know, I talk to so many people, whether they're from, you know, a, a less developed country or a Western country or wherever in the world it may be that are like, oh, you know, I really wanted to work in conservation, but you know, I have student loans to pay off and I, I have this and this and this and this, and I can't afford to do an internship. I can't afford to have a low paying job or to, you know, take longer to find a paying job. I don't have family to support me at, you know, whatever it may be. And, you know, that always breaks my heart to hear because it's like, well, now we just lost someone who could have been the next Jane Goodall or something, you know, like we lost someone who could have done something incredible for the industry and could have made a huge change in our world. And it all comes back to money and like where you came from, the resources that you have, the support that you have around you. And I think that until, and again, like you said, I don't have a solution, but I think until there is equal opportunity, regardless of your financial state, we won't be able to move forward in the way that we want to because we'll never get the amount of involvement that we need to make some of the huge changes that we need to make in the world to save certain species or, you know, to help the climate a little bit, help the environment, things like that. You know, we're, we're kind of digging ourselves into a hole in a certain, in a certain way. Many ways, but this, yeah, in particular is one that I'm just now really starting to find hopefully some solutions to, or bring some funds to through scholarships or subsidies or merit-based applications or um, a foundation that could divert funds back to people who really have that passion and have that drive, but don't have the resources. So that's, it's very complicated. Yeah. It's such a tough issue and it it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it sucks for, even 
people like us who have had the opportunity to get into the industry and an opportunity to probably do different internships and things like that that have costed us money. And so, you know, for the people who haven't had those same opportunities, it's like, what are you supposed to do? No, I used to feel feel so guilty. Like I was, and I still can tend to feel that way, but I was like stagnant for so long because I was like, but so many people out there don't have this and who am I to, you know, take advantage of it or whatever. Who am I? Who am I? And now I'm just like, okay, this is the roll of the die. I didn't ask for this life necessarily. This is where I was born. These are the situations I'm in. I'm also crippled because I have a fan. Like I have, I mean, I'm crippled in the way of travel. Like I have a family. So I can't go and just live in Nepal for six months. But I, I have other things to give and let's, instead of feeling bad and beating myself up for that, I'm going to use the resources that I have to make that positive. Right. That's right. To use it to the best of your ability. Mm Because you're like, you know, I have this ability. I might as well make a difference. And I think that that is ultimately how we're going to need to change, like how we will lead to change in the industry. Because once there are more people like you who are saying like, okay, I need to make this more accessible. Then maybe that, like you were saying, brings on more scholarships, more foundations, or just more organizations around the world that have the funding to give paid internships or paid jobs, you know, like bare minimum with paid jobs, but you know, things like that, where now you are able to build up the next generation of conservationists in a way that is sustainable and people are learning, but they're also able to support themselves through that learning, which is something that people in other industries have, but we don't yet. And I mean, it's, it's, you see both sides of that coin because on one end, those people are like, we're doing the best we can. We don't have any funding, any funding we have go back, goes back to the animals. Mm -hmm. But if some of that funding and resources don't go back into conservationists, there will be no conservationists to conserve those animals in 20 years, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And you, you know, you have to put it back in to get it out. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You wrote a great blog post, um, talking about the, I can't remember what it was called, but the, um, the toxic work culture and conservation. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you kind of touched on it, but what inspired, what, what led to you writing that? Um, mostly, I guess, experience that I had while I was traveling, meeting certain different people and, you know, working at different places and seeing the mindset that was going into conservation work. And I had a moment a few months ago where I was like, I feel guilty for saying that I want to have a nice, comfortable home that has like, if I'm living in the jungle in Nepal, like saying like, I want to have a Western toilet. And I also want to have air conditioning because it's hot in the summer. And I'm like, I feel guilty for saying that because there's this unspoken kind of, like I said, culture that's like, you need to suffer for your cause you're not giving enough if you're not suffering for your cause, if you're not like basically being a martyr for your cause. And 
I was like, it shouldn't be this way. First of all, it's not sustainable because you can't work 24 hours a day, every day. You can't, I mean, some, uh, everybody has a different standard of living that they are comfortable with. That is fair. But if you're never taking a day off, if you're never taking a holiday, if, if you want to have a family and you don't, because you say like, well, I can't have kids in order to be a good conservationist, or I can't get married in order to be a good conservationist, then your basic needs for you, not your survival needs, but your needs are not being met. You're not living the life that is fully fulfilling to you. And so you can't a hundred percent pour that back into your cause because you're not filling your own cup up first. You know what I mean? So I, I struggled with that a lot over the past probably year, year and a half of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't have a lot of money. I shouldn't have a nice place to live. I shouldn't have a nice car. Not that I have any of those things, <laughs> but that those shouldn't be aspirations because if they were, I wasn't giving enough. I wasn't giving all of me to my cause. And, you know, then I, I had a moment where I was like, well, I wouldn't want to give all of me to something because then what would be left? How would I then support myself? My, I don't have a family besides my parents and my sister, but my family, my future family, my future spouse, my, you know, whatever it may be. Like if we don't have a balanced life, then we can only go so far in our work as well. And so I think there needs to be more focus and more people talking about the fact that there needs to be a work-life balance, even when you're in an industry that focuses on charity or giving back, you know, things like that, because you shouldn't have to suffer for your cause. (laughs) Like the money that you put in, like I hear some people saying like, well, I didn't buy a house because instead I gave it to this organization or because I did. Okay. But let's not say like, Oh, well, you're a bad conservationist because you bought that house. Let's look at these things separately. (laughs) My personal life has nothing to do with my work life in most senses, you know, and, and it shouldn't be one or the other. People should be be able to have everything they want. (laughs) I have a friend and I'm not going to name this person, but Um, If you're listening, you know who you are, who um, literally has not been to the doctor in years and has all sorts of, you know, like shingle, like adult shingles and like things like flesh eating bacteria from field work. And I'm just like, just go to the doctor. And he's like, I can't afford it. I'm like, oh, please, please go to the doctor. Please take care of yourself first. I mean, that's your basic physical needs, respect yourself and respect your own, you know, your body and your mental and emotional and spiritual and physical needs, because that will pour back into conservation efforts. Right. Right. It's okay to take time off. It's okay. Even if you take two days off every week, you know, it's, it's okay to take holidays. It's okay to do all the things that you want to do in order to have a balanced lifestyle. You know, if, if you work in a certain country, but you like to travel, it's okay to take time off to go on a trip. Mm-hmm. You know, these aren't what are going to make or break a certain project, as long as you're communicating time off, you know, as, as you should, but <laughs> you know, this shouldn't be a trade-off at all. And it's an interesting thing, um, as you've been talking and I, I'm, cause I've been thinking about a lot 
of the same line of thinking and specifically with regards to capitalism, like we're, we're in such a consumeristic society. Like we kind of, especially as environmentalists and conservationists tend to like snub our noses at, um, and I say are, because I've done this before too, like someone who has a big house or someone who has a fancy car and someone who's just putting all this money into things that to us doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do that? So then when we want to do the same things, it, it feels hypocritical. It feels wrong. Um, it feels like we're just, we're just going on that cycle of capitalism too. Like we're just the cog in the machine almost, but yet, yet conservation has its own little mini machine of perpetuating the system. Yeah. We don't want to perpetuate that any longer either. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, mental health awareness and a lot of these like, you know, self-care, but like taking seriously taking good care of yourself to pour the best you can into conservation. It's being really, really highly spoken about. And then I also have to throw out all the resources I know. Um, are you familiar yeah. with lonely conservationists? Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. A good one. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I interviewed Jesse a few um, weeks ago. So her, her episode will be coming out soon, but yeah, such a good organization to connect with other biologists and conservationists who are just struggling yeah. with these things. And then, um, I also had an interview with Brittany sorry. No, I say her name wrong. It's, it's just sorry, Brittany, sorry. And, um, she's a conservation, conservation trauma researcher. And so people are looking yeah. at people are studying. Is she the one who was doing that, um, that survey on Instagram. Conservationtrauma.com. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You did that survey? Yep. Very important work. So I am, Uh and I said this on the episode where we talked, but I'm so encouraged that people are looking at these things about how the the fear of the planet, the the doom and gloom of climate change and like habitat loss and species, biodiversity loss and species extinction. And that plus compounded with the fact that we make no money and a whole, the whole conservation sector has no money and we're struggling and we're working our tail off and we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not getting the help and resources we need. And we're not allowing ourselves the creature comforts that, um, maybe could help put us in a new level of, okay, I feel safe, secure, right. Um, The guilt, the eco-anxiety, all of those things are what I'm, I'm interested in continuing to have these conversations and um, hear more stories like this because it needs to be, it needs to be talked about. Right. And I think, like you said, it's important because going back to, if we don't focus on these things, there will be no conservationists in the future because people, the people who are in the field now will burn out. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are thinking about going into the field, are going to be like, why would I want to go into that field? Everyone's miserable. I can't have the house, you know, like, you know, these basic things, it it doesn't make it appealing for those who are aspiring to work in conservation. And it doesn't make it sustainable for those who are already in conservation at all. Excellent. Well said. You have a good way of, of saying things and just kind of tying the knot. I'm like, yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks. Um, That is, uh, this has really been a good conversation. Uh, I feel like I could, I always say this to people. I'm like, I feel like I could just talk forever. I like just want to 
keep talking about it. And that's why I love doing the podcast is because this is my bread and butter. Like this is what I really enjoy getting into dialogue about. Um, so, but I did want to hear, did you, do you have a field story that you want to share? Yeah, I do. And honestly, after I get done telling this story, you're going to be like, of course you would say this, but anyway, my, my like good and bad field story is the same because when I first went to Thailand, it was in uh, 2017, I think I was still in college and I was doing like a study abroad program in Thailand. Um, for pre-vet students, because I thought that I was going to go to vet school, which I didn't, but, um, I, my first week there was at an elephant sanctuary, which is kind of what set me on my path, but I was working with the vets there and it was honestly like the most, I mean, obviously it was very life-changing time because it, it completely sculpted what I'm doing now, but I look back on it and I was thought this was the coolest thing. I was sitting in a river, fully sitting in a river with an elephant above me, lifting her foot up. And I was doing foot care on her, on her foot because she had stepped on a landmine. So I was cleaning her foot out. And I was like, I have peaked. This is so cool. Like, I was like, this is the coolest time of my whole life. And it's funny because I don't know. I'm sure other people can relate to this because 2022. Danielle looks back at that version of me and I'm like, Oh God, I can't believe you did that. Like I would never do that now because I know (laughs) so much about elephants. Uh, And I think partially the more, you know, about elephants, the more afraid you are of them because you, you start to realize how dangerous they are and how quickly they can switch on you. And, um, but at the time I didn't know anything about elephants and the vet was like, get in the river and do this. And I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. And so I, I look back on it and I'm like, wow, I would never do that now. But how cool was that? And I think it's important. The reason I wanted to tell this story was because I think that a lot of people can look back on certain things that they've done, whether it's working in conservation or with animals traveling, whatever, and, and be ashamed of them and be like, you know, I have moments where I'm like, I should delete those pictures off of my Instagram. But at the same time, you can't get down on yourself or anyone else for what you did before you knew better or for what you did when people were telling you to do these things and they didn't know better or they weren't telling you better. They weren't educating you in the way that maybe they should have. And so I think it is kind of one of those full circle moments where now I'm like, you know, this isn't safe (laughs) at all. I mean, it's not that it was unethical, but it was unsafe a hundred percent. And, but you know, you can't, you can't look back on the things that you've done and be like, I should never have done that. I should take this off of social media. I should never talk about this. I should never admit to anyone that I have bathed an elephant or that I have sat in a river with an elephant and done this, or that I've, you know, had really close contact because then they're going to look at me and, and think I'm a hypocrite for telling other people not to do it. But it's not that at all, because the way that you learn is through experiencing and then learning like, okay, that wasn't right. What is right? Okay, now I can save you the experience of also feeling that cycle of shame. (laughs) And so I think it's important to share the the kinds of things that we've done that at the time was like, honestly, the most awesome moment of my whole life. (laughs) And now I'm like, that's okay. You know, like, yeah, I did do that. (laughs) 
I wouldn't do it again. And here's why. And here's why you shouldn't do it because you might get stepped on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a, that's a really good story. Uh, no better do better. What's the first thing that pops in my mind? Like now that we know better, we are exactly better. And you can't until, you know, you just, you don't know that you could have, you could have gotten stomped when you were giving the elephant (laughs) pedicure, like, right. Exactly. And was it, so it was not just your, um, like life kind of at risk potentially that you didn't know about, but is it like ethical to do that to, to elephants specifically? Like, yeah, so we were doing vet care. So, um, I've done a lot of footwork on elephants and because foot disease is like one of the number one things that can kill a captive elephant because it just festers and it gets into the bones. And if they, if they get infections, if they can't walk well, then they're not really going to live very long. So foot care is a big part of caring for captive elephants. And that was what they were teaching us was foot care for like traumatic injuries. So this elephant had a a hole underneath her foot from stepping on a landmine. And so we were just scrubbing it out and putting ointment and medicine on it. So what we were doing was good, but you know, hindsight doing these things in protected contact where there's a barrier between you elephant presents its foot and you work on the foot is much safer, especially if you could be doing something that's potentially painful for the elephant where they might jerk react and without meaning to, if they bring their foot back and it hits you in the head, I mean, we all know that a a kick from a horse can kill you. So kick from an elephant definitely could take you down. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just one of those things where you have to be conscious of your safety and again, how it looks to other people. There were so many people visiting that, that location that I was in that were tourists and they were probably looking going, that's so cool. I want to do that. When I post the photo there, people were probably like, that's so cool. I want to do that. Where can I go where I can touch an elephant like that? You know, mm. <laughs> hindsight's so, you know, <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a good story. That's very interesting. I like that you brought it back full circle and now, now we know. Now yeah. we know. Well, where can people, connect with you, find you, read your awesome blog, see your awesome TikToks and um, reels on Instagram. Yeah. Share your stuff. So my website is thecalltoconserve.com. And call to conserve. Thecalltoconserve.com. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, all one word.com. Okay. And so you can find me on there. You can email me through there, comment on anything. I'll respond. I'm the only one on there. So if you get a response, it's always me. 100% mm-hmm. of the time. <laughs> and you can join my membership there and uh, connect with me and kind of read some of these deeper stories if you want to. Okay. Uh, on Instagram, I am Danielle Four, the number four wildlife. And that is my username on TikTok as well. Um, Instagram is where I am most of the time though. So that's probably the best place to connect with me. I also have a Facebook page for the call to conserve that is called the same thing. Uh, so any of those places people can connect with me, but definitely Instagram or the blog is the best, the best two places. That's where I spend most of my time. So you'll probably get a quick response from me from either of those. (laughs) And when you travel to Nepal, will you still be working, um, on your blog, on your online stuff, you'll have internet access to be able to. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to upload a new blog post once a week. And so usually I upload more in the membership now because people are supporting the website by being in the membership. So I, I try to upload 
I upload videos in there, which I don't upload videos like longer form videos anywhere else besides like my reels, but those are usually short and kind of like goofy sometimes. <laughs> but um, I upload longer form videos, kind of like YouTube style videos in the membership. Um, if people like that kind of content, otherwise, I have like hundreds of blog posts for free on my website. I also have a bunch of other resources for people looking to go more zero waste or figure out how to ethically find a sanctuary. I have tons of resources on there for people to, to go through. Awesome. I'm so glad that you've provided all that content. It's really important to get people to understand how to travel ethically, um, how to care for animals and not harass them and really find yeah. the best place. And that's, I mean, we could talk for another hour just to go oh, yeah. physical animal travel. Easily, <laughs> easily could, yeah. But for the, um, to respect your time, I am going to um, save that for another day. <laughs> yeah, so we'll yeah. Have, maybe we'll have to have you back on the podcast in the future. For sure, anytime. Thank you so much for having me too. I love what you're doing, talking more about these kinds of issues that are not talked about enough. Mm-hmm. not brought into the light enough because people, people don't want to shine a light on these kinds of things. So I appreciate what you're doing. It's really, really cool. Yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. And I love meeting just people from across the country, across, across the globe and having conversations and connecting with people. So I feel like I just have a whole new group of friends now through the yeah. podcast, which is so fun. Yeah. It's um, so cool. And it's so important to network in an industry like this. It's true. To know each other, have friends, people who you can chat with, like you were saying with lonely conservationists, like so important to have people who you can relate to. Definitely. Definitely is. Thank you so much for coming on, Danielle. Yeah, thank thank you. And um, yeah, look Danielle up and um, it was lovely to have you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, Ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet. Thank you.